الجزيرة بودكاست It was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history. A massive explosion has torn through the Lebanese capital, Beirut. A city broken, a city where the dead are being buried, and anger is rising to the surface. Families of more than 200 victims of the 2020 Beirut port blast have been searching for justice for two and a half years. Late last month, they thought they might be closer to that goal when a judge reopened a dormant investigation into the blast and into the leaders accused of letting it happen. The surprise decision by the lead judicial investigator, Tariq Bitar, has given back hope to the victims' families. But a move from a top official accused in the case himself may have just put all of that to a halt. So will the families of the victims ever get justice? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. She was 29 years old, very positive, very friendly, very loyal. That's Mariana Fadulian, and she's talking about her sister, Gaia, who was killed in the Beirut port blast in August 2020. She was going to prepare herself and take her bath until I come and pick her up to go uh, shopping together. So this is the way she was killed in her own house by our government. The reason Mariana believes that is because of what caused the blast, hundreds of tons of ammonium nitrate. The dangerously explosive substance had been kept in the port for more than six years. In the wake of the blast, evidence emerged that officials in the government knew about the risk, but did nothing. And the public took to the streets. The blast is being investigated by Judge Tarek Bitar, who took over the case in February 2021. But opposition to his probe from lawmakers made it difficult for him to get anything done. Officials have blocked the investigation for more than a year now. They have filed lawsuits against the lead investigator, Tarek Bitar, preventing him from proceeding with his investigation. And then Judge Bitar surprised everyone by reopening the case. Two weeks ago, he charged several senior political figures, including the former prime minister and the country's top prosecutor. Two days later, that same prosecutor, Hassan Awadat, charged Judge Bitar with usurping power, alleging he was acting without a mandate. Awadat also released all those detained in the investigation. Karim Shihayeb, a reporter with the Associated Press in Beirut, has been following both men and the dueling charges they've been issuing since it all began. This is certainly, I think, the most explicit and aggressive intervention to the investigation since day one. And the man whose investigation has been squashed, Judge Bitar, has almost become a hero of sorts because of his fight for justice. It's something I asked Karim about. What can you tell me about Justice Tarek Bitar? He is definitely a maverick judge. And he developed a massive popularity. The families of the victims were so galvanized. They always protested. They almost became sort of like this vigilante 
accountability organization when they feel like there was nobody in power to represent them and to fight for them. Mm-hmm. And the protests for Bitar, whenever there was sort of uh, an obstacle to the investigation, got bigger. Have you met him? So Tarek Bitar has not made any public appearances. He doesn't meet the press in person. You know, he is sort of enigmatic. Mm. You know, even if you look at social media and even if you look at news coverage, you know, there's never um, any sort of footage of Bitar, no video, no nothing. It's mostly this one portrait of him Mm -hmm. that has been used since he was brought into the fold. I think there's maybe one or two other pictures of him if you search really hard on Google. Which is so unusual for this day and age. Oh, absolutely. Especially for such a high-profile case. But I think given the sensitivity of it and the magnitude of it and the political tensions that have existed and have worsened in Lebanon, it it probably serves a purpose in that sense. Especially now because uh, Bitar does not have many friends in power, that's for sure. For almost two years, Bitar faced attempts to slow down his investigation. But the prosecutor general's charges against him on January 25th go beyond that, to the point it may not be legal. Legal experts sort of came out and said, well, this creates a lot of legal ambiguities. Judge Bitar had charged the prosecutor general, Hassan Awaidet, among other people. And so the question is, can someone who is charged charge the person who charged them back? (laughs) Right. Where do Lebanese people find the answer to that? Can they? Well, that's the question. There's different legal interpretations. I think there is a consensus that it shouldn't have happened the way it did. But the question is, what action will be taken to hold the prosecutor general to account? We'll dig more into that in a bit. But before that, it's important to understand how the mood in Lebanon rose and fell at the end of January. Excitement turned into extreme anger and frustration. The prosecutor general, who was on the receiving end of so much criticism and was the main headline in the country, there were planned protests outside of Justice Palace, where his office is. The prosecutor general entered the building, escorted by some 12 or so special forces officers in masks and assault rifles. And there's a video of him walking up the stairs, just surrounded by them. You know, he goes into his office and they're standing outside guarding the office. And he didn't leave until the protests ended and he was escorted out. And this is, you know, uh, the prosecutor general of, of, of a country. I mean, it was a very surreal sort of image to kind of see at the time. What do we know about the legality of this? Is this seen by those who are seeking justice as as kind of the, the nail in the coffin of the investigation? Or does there seem to be an avenue for recourse after this? So legal experts and some lawyers, and Judge Pitar himself actually in a statement, you know, came out and rejected the prosecutor general's moves. They called it illegal. What legal recourse could take place I mean, we haven't seen anything yet, you know, but the families definitely see that this not as an obstacle to the investigation, but arguably one of the final nails in the coffin of the investigation. I've spoken to the families regularly, several of the families over the past few years. And usually when there's an obstacle, they get frustrated, they get angry. But the recent decision, it really seemed like they were almost mourning the investigation. People felt defeated in a way. Over the years since the blast, a lot of them would accuse the authorities of obstructing investigation. But now they're talking about the killing of investigation. 
But not all of them have given up hope. Mariana, who we heard from earlier, still believes she can get justice for her sister Gaia's death. We are still continuing and we will continue till the end until we get the justice. And we will never, ever stop. Mariana says the leaders that Judge Pitar has gone after are responsible for the blast. And that responsibility goes back far before the disaster occurred. It's important to say that the crime never started in 2020. It started in 2013 by keeping this ammonium for years in the port. And then the crime is continuing day by day by, uh, by the government when they are doing everything to stop the investigation as if nothing happened. They knew about the ammonium and they knew how much this ammonium will destroy Beirut and the port. This is a crime against the population. But Mariana is especially critical of the prosecutor general. He thinks that he's over the law and no one can ask him for investigation or no one can accuse him or uh, anything, you know. So as if he's the boss and no one can even catch him. He knows very well that what he was doing was illegal. He is one of the people also that caused the killing of our victims. The prosecutor general has denied any wrongdoing, as have all of those previously implicated in the investigation. But Mariana and others believe the fact that he was charged might be why he shut it down. Karim says the move was unprecedented. I think there are several things which are very unique about this investigation. I think it just targets senior political, judicial, and security officials in a way that has not been done really ever. You know, society people believe that those in power are generally untouchable. So what will it mean for Lebanon if those in power remain untouchable? More on that after the break. If you need in-depth analysis of news and current affairs in one of the world's most misunderstood and complicated regions, join me, Sami Zaydan, every Thursday on Al Jazeera's Essential Middle East podcast. The decision to file charges against the judge investigating Beirut's port explosion has taken the wind out of the sails of many fighting for justice. I went back to Associated Press reporter Karim Shihayib for a reminder of the atmosphere right after the disaster. Can you take us back to the mood right around the time of the port blast? There had been the uprising in late 2019. Protests have resurged over the past week, over the government's failure to appoint a new cabinet. And of course, it comes as the country sinks deeper into an economic crisis. Then the pandemic hit, and then the blast, which killed at least 218 people. Remind us of what that time was like. The evening of the Beirut port blast was, I think, one of the biggest nightmares the country has ever witnessed. And it really looked like the aftermath of an airstrike. Every step you would take on the streets, you would, you know, you'd hear the sound of glass cracking. A lot of people were, were volunteering to help, you know, they were pulling people out of the rubble, 
there were not enough ambulances to take people to the hospital. And so people would, you know, would ride, would put them on motorcycles and they would zoom off to the hospitals. It really was a nightmare. And remind us, did we see immediate protests after? Or was there just too much shock for protests to take place? There certainly was a lot of shock in the beginning. And people didn't really know what was going on. Um, the first few days were mostly, you know, volunteer efforts. But there was a protest less than a week later, and it was a huge protest. It was, you know, the largest mass protest since, you know, probably the early days of the uprising late 2019 when people were worried about the economy. There were thousands of people on the streets and it was, you know, angry. People held wooden, fake sort of nooses or guillotines and they had cardboard cutouts of different politicians and they were saying that, you know, they wanted to execute them and so on. And that anger, coupled with government inaction that the people were all too familiar with, led to a feeling of wanting to draw a line in the sand. When you look at the Beirut port blast and the files and the paper trail and the years leading to the blast, you see lots of things that people have complained about in Lebanon for for many years. Incompetence, Mm. needless bureaucracy, negligence, and the port explosion, which is sort of this massive catastrophic, borderline apocalyptic byproduct of all this. And so for a lot of people, especially early on, they would tell me that they hoped that the Beirut port blast would be a wake-up call for things to change because it shows that it's not just briberies here and there, but that's corruption. It can actually be fatal. You know, the whole ammonium nitrate shipments coming in and the back and forth that took place, you know, which it was in the port for six years. Yeah. This is something that I think in any other case could have been dealt with in months, if not weeks, even with bureaucracy. If there is no justice for the port blast, how would you say this fits in with broader trends of accountability in Lebanon? Do the people you talk to think this is just par for the course, or does this feel different? When Judge Bitar starts to charge senior political officials, you know, this sort of shocked many people because Lebanon has a very troubled history. And part of what Kareem was talking about there is Lebanon's civil war from 1975 to 1990, which saw around 200,000 people killed and as many as 17,000 people go missing with no accountability. You know, 15 years civil war with the war crime sort of absolved through a general amnesty, people who are still missing, and there was no viable commission to even look for the missing of the war, mass corruption, all sorts of things. There's a general sort of attitude in Lebanon that there is no justice and no accountability for anybody, no matter what. And, you know, whatever happens, you just have to live with it. But then suddenly when Bittar went after these senior officials, people were very shocked and they thought, oh, this could be an exception. And lots of people would say that this could be a turning point for justice. This could be, this could set a precedent for the judiciary in Lebanon. This could be a judiciary that goes after anyone if there's evidence to do so. And I think that was something that really brought hope into it. Unfortunately, that mood sort of just went in a very different direction once the obstacles to the investigation started happening. People said, well, this is how it always has been. 
And this is no different. Even if you try, you'll get these obstacles. There is sort of a history of impunity in the country. So if the Beirut port blast investigation fails, then this will basically maintain this pattern. Mariana agrees. We need justice because when we don't have justice and we don't punish those people, so many other crimes will happen in Lebanon in the same way as if nothing happened. This is the way it goes in Lebanon. But this time, as families of the victims, we will never stop until we get justice and we see them punished. Mariana certainly has never stopped and has even sacrificed her career to focus solely on getting someone to take responsibility for the blast. I'm a veterinary doctor and I lost my work and I'm not working. It's been one year and a half uh, so that I can work for justice. Unfortunately, when you are in a country as Lebanon and you have to ask for justice and work for it by yourself, I had to lose my work. Mariana says her sister Gaia lived overseas, but came back to Lebanon three years before the blast because she loved her country. My sister Gaia had to study in Geneva for three years and one year in Milano where you have the minimum human rights. But she loved Lebanon and she loved the population here. She did everything to come back to Lebanon and continue her life here. But Mariana says that at this point, the fight for justice is about more than her sister. It's about the message it sends to the Lebanese people. Many other Lebanese people that they are living abroad now, they would love to come back to Lebanon. They are not coming to Lebanon because they don't have the minimum rights here, you know. So getting justice, it's really important for the population, like the new generations coming, because for 30 years we never saw anyone punished. And this isn't Lebanon's only problem. The fight for justice is playing out amid the backdrop of a crumbling economy. Lebanon recently devalued its currency by 90%, and citizens have already resorted to robbing banks to get access to their own money, which had been blocked. Most depositors have been locked out of their savings since a financial crisis took hold in Lebanon three years ago. Now some of those customers are taking matters into their own hands by holding up bank branches. The Lebanese population, their money is stolen by this government. We don't have electricity, we don't have water, we have nothing. And also, we are not secure in this country. So when you don't have justice and you don't punish those people who were like causing the biggest explosion in Beirut, maybe it's the third biggest explosion of the world, you can never feel safe in a country like this. So uh, for me, like getting justice in this case will bring justice to many other cases in Lebanon that never got justice before. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra with Amy Walters, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Nagin Oliai, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. 
Our engagement producers are Andy Greiner and Adam Abugad. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Friday.